0: Welcome to the weekly message from Albert Park Baptist Church, a community of believers seeking to love God, love one another, and love our neighborhood right in the heart of Melbourne. We hope you find today's message inspiring. Um, So let's pray and then we'll jump into the word of God. Father, we're grateful that as we come here today that even little children can celebrate your salvation. We're grateful that it doesn't cost us anything, but that you paid the entire price. And that no matter where we're at with you today, whether we feel a thousand miles away from you or whether we feel like you live within us, you are present. And so, Father, I just ask that you would speak through your word today. Give us ears to hear and eyes to see, a mind that's open Heart that's open to you. And Father, if there is someone here today who's just walked in, who doesn't know you, I just pray that there would be that invitation today to a relationship with you. Father, for those who are here today who feel, like I said, a million miles away, that they would hear your invitation to come. And for those of us who've been walking this journey for years and years and years, there would be the reminder of the hope that we have to not get discouraged today. That we have a future hope. And that He's coming soon. And so, Lord, we bring this time to you and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. We're in Luke chapter 17 uh, to the start of chapter 18. And we've been studying Luke the whole year. And so if you feel a bit lost at the start, feel free to check out our website and the podcast, and you can catch back up the uh, other 17 chapters. Here's Luke 17, starting at verse 20. It says this, Once on being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, Jesus replied, The kingdom of God is not something that can be observed, nor will people say, Here it is, or there it is, because the kingdom of God is in your midst. Then Jesus said to his disciples, The time is coming when you will long to see one of the days of the Son of Man, but you won't see it. People will tell you, there it is, or here he is. Do not go running after them. For the Son of Man in his day will be like the lightning, which flashes and lights up the sky from one end to the other. But first he must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation." Just as it was in the days of Noah, so also will it be in the days of the Son of Man. People were eating, drinking, marrying and being given in marriage up to the day Noah entered the ark, then the flood came and destroyed it all. It was the same in the days of Lot. People were eating and drinking, buying and selling, planting and building, but the day Lot left Sodom, fire and sulfur rained down from heaven and destroyed them all. It will be just like this on the day of the Son of Man is revealed. On that day, no one who is on the housetop with possessions inside should go down and get them. Likewise, no one in the field should go back for anything. Remember Lot's wife. Whoever tries to keep their life will lose it, and whoever loses their life will preserve it. I tell you, on that night, two people will be in one bed, one will be taken and the other left. Two women will be grinding grain together, one will be taken and the other left. Where, Lord? they asked. He replied, Where there is a dead body, there the vultures will gather. Chapter 18. Then Jesus told his disciples a parable to show them that they should always pray and not give up. He said, In a certain town, there was a judge who neither feared God nor cared what people thought. And there was a widow in that town who kept coming to him with the plea Grant me justice against my adversary. For some time, he refused. But finally, he said to himself, "'Even though I don't fear God or care what people think, "'yet because this widow keeps bothering me, "'I will see she gets justice "'so that she won't eventually come and attack me.' "'And the Lord said, "'Listen to what the unjust judge says. "'And will not God bring about justice for his chosen ones "'who cry out to him day and night? "'Will he keep putting them off? "'I tell you, he will see that they get justice and quickly.' However, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? And that is a very interesting question. When the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? And so as I said before, we've been tracking through the whole of Luke. And just for some context, this is Jesus heading towards Jerusalem now. He's getting serious. He's not going to pull any punches. He's not going to lighten the load, if you like, um, on what he's trying to say. He's saying that, I'm about to go somewhere, and he refers to it here. He refers he must suffer many things, to be rejected by this generation. So he's going somewhere where he's going to have to suffer and be rejected. And so, he's speaking to his disciples in this context of what he's about to do, okay, so it's serious. And what's important from the first uh, two verses is he mentions this idea of this kingdom of God. And he, he just opposes it with the kingdom of the world. There's this kingdom of God coming, or in Jesus' words, that is in the midst, that's already present, that's casting its shadow over the present, if you like, that it's at work secretly among these people. This kingdom where God is the king and where God is reigning is starting to creep in to the world. And while the evil age continues, the kingdom of God has begun to work quietly in a form almost unnoticed by the world. If you ask anyone or read the newspapers or watch ABC News or whatever, no one's going to be in there saying, did you see the kingdom of God is coming? And yet, if you, if you understand things and look into the way that God's church is moving across the world, you will see churches in Africa With 15 million people in China, in the underground church that's moving. In our area here, people's lives are being changed by Jesus. There's something about it. The kingdom of God is in the midst of his people. So God's kingdom is breaking in, is Jesus' point. And then he starts talking about some weird stuff about the Son of Man. And that's an interesting title, it's a title taken from the Old Testament. And it's helpful to understand what he's talking about. And the Son of Man was Jesus' favorite way of designating himself. It's kind of his favorite nickname, you know? My nickname's Cam. His nickname was the Son of Man. Uh, No one else called Jesus the Son of Man in the entire Bible. You may or may not have known that. No one else did. They've called him Lord. They've called him Master. They've called him all sorts of other stuff. But no one else calls him the Son of Man. Even the early church didn't call him that. You can read through the book of Acts, you can read through all of the the letters. No one calls Jesus the Son of Man. This is just his nickname, it's how he knows himself, it's his identity, if you like. And in Luke's Gospel particularly, the Son of Man is described in three forms. The earthly form, as in Jesus, God in a bod on earth. The suffering form, God in a bod on earth, suffering. And the apocalyptic or the end times form. This God who came in a body, who suffered, and who will return. And so I'm just going to read you a few of those different descriptions because it's helpful to get our mind around what he's actually talking about. This is in Luke 5, 24, and this is an earthly version of Jesus. And it says this, I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He's talking about himself. Or 6 verse 5, Jesus said to them, The Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. Or 6.22. Blessed are you when people hate you, when they exclude you and insult you and reject your name as evil because of the Son of Man. He's referring to himself on earth. Or 7.34, for example. It says this. The Son of Man came eating and drinking. And you say he's a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. But wisdom is proved right by all her children. His point is that, that part of who he is, his identity, is earthly. He's a human being, born of a woman. Okay. Then we see suffering. Nine twenty-two. He predicts this three times, and he said to them, "The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law." And he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. Now note, this is, he says this ahead of time. Okay, He's saying, I'm going to be rejected by all these people and I'm going to die and on the third day I'm going to be to life. Right. 944, second time he predicts it. Listen carefully to what I'm about to tell you. The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. Well, you flip way ahead to 1725, says this. But first he must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. So we've got this human form, if you like, this suffering form, and then this apocalyptic form, which is 9.26 as the first reference. It says this, Whoever is ashamed of me and my words, the Son of Man will be ashamed of them when he comes in his glory and in the glory of the Father and of the Holy Spirit. 12.8. Says this, I tell you, whoever publicly acknowledges me before others, the Son of Man will also acknowledge before the angels of God. Or 1240. Says this, you also must be ready because the Son of Man will come in an hour when you don't expect him. So Jesus here, in these three different ways, is explaining who he understands himself to be. That I am on one hand a human being, on earth but I'm also someone who is going to suffer on earth and then I'm going to come back and bring people with me to heaven it's an interesting title and so I explain that because the rest of the passages are about that so Jesus will be a heavenly glorious son of man coming with the clouds to judge people and bring in this kingdom of God However, in advance of this, Jesus is the Son of Man living on earth with people at this point of time. And his ministry, when he was on earth, was not to glorify himself. His ministry was to suffer, to serve, to give of himself, to die. And his future self is already present He's saying the kingdom of God is present, but it's in a form they don't expect. And so we read, it goes down, the time is coming when you will long to see one of the days of the Son of Man. There's a time coming where you're going to wish that Jesus was coming now. That's what he's saying. But you won't see it. You know, people are going to say, there he is or here he is. Don't go running after them. Uh, Gay alerted me to the fact uh, a little while ago in Jerusalem at the moment, they believe that they found the Messiah. It's obviously not legitimate, obviously, but they believe it is, the rabbis. Um, And so there's all these people who are going to claim that they are who they think they are, that I'm the Messiah or I'm the next person, and Jesus says, you know what, don't worry about that. Don't go running after those people. Why? Verse 24, for the Son of Man in his day, the day that he comes, will be like lightning, which flashes and lights up the sky from one end to the other. What's the point? You're going to notice when Jesus comes back. It's not going to be a little rabbi off to the side saying, well, I heard a prophecy 300 years ago and this thing matches this thing. No, you're going to notice that he's around, that he shows up again. But it adds, but first he must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. He's not coming in glory without first suffering the world and here he explains what those days are going to look like verse 26 just in the days of noah we all remember noah's ark story we like to think of the animals and the amazing things that happened there we don't tend to think about the horrible things that happened in the noah's ark story the whole world was flooded and millions of people were killed and yet here jesus just alludes to that fact just in the days of noah so it'll also be when jesus returns People were eating, drinking and marrying and being given in marriage up to the day that he entered the ark, then the flood came and destroyed them all. That's not a nice cheery message for church this morning, but that's where we're at. He was like, it's going to be like that when the Son of Man comes back. It was the same in the days of Lot. You might remember Lot, Abraham's nephew. He went off to Sodom and Gomorrah and that place was messed up. They did a lot of bad things in that town. And so God decided to destroy it. And people were eating and drinking, buying and selling, planting and building. But the day that Lot left, fire and sulfur rained down from heaven and destroyed them all. Again, not a really cheery message from Jesus this morning. And then he adds, verse 30, it will be just like this on the day that the Son of Man is revealed. On that day, no one on the housetop with possessions inside should go get them. Likewise, no one in the field should go back for anything. Remember Lot's wife. If you remember the story of Lot, Lot's wife looked around, turned to salt. She was done. What's his point? Verse 33, whoever tries to keep their life will lose it, and whoever loses their life will preserve it. I tell you on that night, two people will be in one bed, and the one will be taken and the other left, Two women will be grinding grain together, one will be taken and the other left. It's not an easy message to swallow, but there's a point here. Are we living for this kingdom and this world or the next one? I'm constantly fascinated uh, by people who try and gather a lot of stuff in their life. And when people come to the end of their life, they have this mad rush to kind of hand off all of their stuff to other people because they know they can't take it with them. And it's as if we only realize when we're like on our deathbed that, oh wait, all that junk in my house I can't take with me anymore, uh, so I have to kind of palm it off to everyone first. And it's fascinating here because Jesus is making a a comparison between those who try and keep their life in this world. He's saying, you know what, you try and keep that and you're going to lose it. But if you lose your life for my sake, you'll preserve it. It's interesting. So how should we respond to this reality? Well, the key statement is, again, verse 33. Whoever tries to keep their life will lose it, and whoever loses their life will preserve it. And the key point is self-sacrifice. If you look at Luke, all throughout Luke, but Luke 9, verse 21 to 25 says this. Jesus strictly warned them not to tell this to anyone. He said, the Son of Man must suffer, etc. And then he said... Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross daily and follow me. Whoever wants to save their life will lose it. Whatever loses their life for my sake will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world and yet lose or forfeit their very self? Same message, just a bit earlier on in his life. Paul 9, 57-62. Again, after he's just predicted that he's going to die, it says this. As I walked along the road, a man said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. Jesus replied, foxes have dens and birds have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to rest his head. He said to another man, follow me. But he said, you know what, Lord, first let me go and bury my dad. Jesus said, let the dead bury the dead, but you go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Still another said, I will follow you, Lord, but first let me go back and say goodbye to my family. Jesus said, no one who puts a hand to the plow and looks back is fit for service in the kingdom of God. Or again, 14.26. If anyone comes to me and does not love less, their father, mother, wife, children, brothers, sisters, yes, even their own life, less than me, such a person can't be my disciple. And whoever does not carry their cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. Now, again, it's not an easy message (laughs) for church this morning, but I think it's a reality one that there's kind of two choices in life. We follow the kingdom of the world, which is our default position, I might add, or we follow God's kingdom, which is going to cost us something. Results, and so the key point is self sacrifice. And I guess the the opposing choices are shown in verse 34 and 35, which is this. I tell you that on that night, two people will be in one bed and one will be taken and the other one will be left. Two women will be grinding grain together. One will be taken and the other left. There's no fence, sitters. One will be taken, one will be left. We fast forward to, to chapter 18 now. And it seems like a random parable, and why would you even put it in there? Because um, it doesn't seem like it fits. You know, it does. Let me read it again. Then Jesus told his disciples a parable to show them what they should... Oh, sorry, that they should always pray and not give up. He said, There a certain man There was a judge, who neither feared God nor cared what people thought. And there was a widow in that town who kept coming to him with a plea, Grant me justice against my adversary. For some time he refused, but finally he said to himself, even though I don't fear God or care what people think, yet because this widow keeps pestering me, I will see that she gets justice so she won't eventually come and attack me. And the Lord, Jesus said, listen to what the unjust judge says. And will not God bring about justice for his chosen ones who cry out to him day and night? Will he keep putting them off? I tell you, he will see that they get justice and quickly. However, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? He's linking the parable with what he just talked about. When the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? Will he find people who are persistently coming to him or not? So it's the same themes as the prior verses. It starts with this. Then Jesus told his disciples a parable to show them. The NIV up there says ought. That is a terrible translation of the Greek word. The Greek word is the same word that's used in Mary and Martha where it's talking about there's only one thing necessary. It's a must, okay? So then Jesus told his disciples a parable to show them what they must do. And the two things, they must always pray and secondly, they must not give up or more accurately, they must not be discouraged or they must not lose hope. The emphasis of the parable is perseverance to reach an outcome. The outcome Jesus is referring to is the day that the Son of Man will come and take his followers to glory with him. But the interesting question he closes the parable with is this. When the Son of Man comes, which he will, will he find faith on the earth? Will there be people who are still living this thing out, walking day by day in faith? And the answer to this question rests on whether there are those on earth who have chosen to lose their life for God's sake and who persevere in prayer and are not discouraged. Faith is found in the hearts of those who choose to lay down their lives and who persevere in their reliance on God for their present provision and their future hope. So practically speaking, and I want to get to practical because it's important. We're called by Jesus in these passages to evaluate our lives. What is the primary focus or love of our lives? Is it the kingdom of God or is it things of the world? Is it Jesus or is it something or someone in the world? Luke 17.33 says, Whoever tries to keep their life will lose it and whoever loses their life will preserve it. We discussed a few weeks ago, Jesus is crystal clear about who his followers are. And he defines his followers by love. He says this, If anyone comes to me and does not love their father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even their own life less than me, such a person can't be my disciple. And he adds, Whoever does not carry their cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. There's a Christian philosopher called James K.A. Smith, and he uh, essentially writes a book called you are what you love. that your identity is what you love. which is an interesting statement because i love chocolate so i don't think i'm chocolate but what is your primary love? is it jesus or someone or something else? what things do we need to lay down for jesus to be our primary love? i talked to someone the other day and they think tv I'm not sure I can go that far just yet, but that's good for them. Uh, At the end of this, we're actually going to give you a time of a few minutes of just reflection to think about this and write down anything you feel like, for you personally, you, you might need to lay aside. Before we get there, there's a few other practical implications. And the first is this. Jesus says in the start of Luke chapter 18, Jesus told his disciples a parable to show them that they must always pray and not be discouraged. Note the language, is necessary to pray and not be discouraged. And it's helpful to clarify what's meant, lest we assume that we all need to live in a monastery. So where it says it's necessary for followers of Jesus to always pray, what is described is continual, rather than continuous prayer. And I'll make a difference between those two things. And there is a difference. If Jesus had in mind continuous prayer, then every single follower of Jesus on planet Earth will be praying 24 seven until he returns. Every single one of us, right now we'd be praying. Then we'd be praying as we're walking out, praying as we're getting in the car, praying as we're going to work, the whole thing. It would be 24 seven, non-stop, continual prayer until he returns, which would be an interesting way of living. Don't worry about eating or drinking or sleeping or exercising or working. You have one job if it's continuous prayer, to pray 24-7, all the time. Clearly, there must be another way to understand what he's talking about. And that's continual prayer. While continuous prayer emphasizes the need for individuals to pray all the time, Continual prayer emphasizes the importance of continuing to pray between now and then. It's not saying 24-7 all the time. It's just talking about having a, a relationship with Jesus. That you don't give up on doing that. You don't stop just because you feel like, well, it's going to be ages away now. I can just pause for a little while and then come back another time. The focus is not on praying 24 7, but on ensuring that we don't give up praying before He returns. It's not about perfecting a prayer life, but persevering in reliance on God. Continually taking that step each day. I'm going to trust you again. I'm going to trust you again. I'm going to trust you again. Persevering, that as we talked about last time, means showing up, sitting at Jesus' feet and listening to Him. I'm convinced. From reading through Luke and preaching through it this year, that the posture of a disciple of Jesus is someone who sits at Jesus' feet and listens to him. You think about the man who was demon possessed, who Jesus healed. Where did he go? He went to Jesus' feet. Think about the lady who uh, was a sinful woman, uh, anointed Jesus' feet with her tears, cleaned his feet with her tears. She was just at his feet. You think about so many other references in Luke's gospel, particularly, it's, they're always at his feet, listening to him. They're, they're just there. It's a sp- place of reverence. Showing up, listening. What not about constantly doing this 24-7. Even the monks, monks in the monastery can't do that, you know? It's about consistently showing up. I'm going to show up today. I'm going to show up tomorrow. I'm going to show up in three weeks, even though it's going to be hard because I'm going to go through something. Relying on God and what he provides for us each day. And practically, this requires three things. A time, a place, and a plan. It'll involve you getting out your calendar or diary or organiser and making an appointment for you and God. I don't know if you've ever done this before. Well, we make appointments for everything else. Choose a time when you'll be freshest and most alert. Be thoughtful about the time of day and your energy levels. Don't, if you're not a morning person, don't say you're going to wake up at 6am and spend time in prayer with God. You will just nod off again. Or if you're not a night person, you're, again, you're going to pray and fall asleep, which is not necessarily a bad way to fall asleep. But it's not the best way to cultivate a relationship with God either. So choose a time and then choose a place. A place that is free or can be free of distractions if you move a few things around. This could be your office, if you can close the door. This could be a dining room table, a comfortable leather chair or lounge chair, your bed before you go to sleep, a local cafe or restaurant, a form of public transport, a park bench, pick a place, anywhere. Then choose a plan, something that suits your personality. a few months ago, me and a number of others here decided, well, I decided, that it would be a good idea to do, read through the Bible in 90 days. That was not a good idea in hindsight. And my spiritual director actually asked me one day, she's like, did you think you're actually going to be able to finish that in 90 days? Uh, I thought, yeah, I was really keen on doing that. No, nowhere near. So pick a plan that suits your personality. If you're an organic person who just kind of flies by the seat of your pants, be organic. Read through a psalm. Just pick one. If you're a structured person, pick a Bible reading plan. There's so many of them on the, on, online. Go at your own pace. Ask questions like this. How is God, Jesus described in what I'm reading? How can I relate to this God or Jesus as he's being described? If he's compassionate to someone, how am I relating to that? And now he's turning over tables in the temple, what's he turning over in my heart? asking questions like this. What does it suggest about what God values? If he's valuing those who are the least of these, am I valuing those people? Am I in sync with what's going on? What is this verse or passage inviting me to believe or do? Maybe we don't trust God with finances. Maybe he's inviting me to trust. Maybe he's inviting me to put down the phone or whatever it is. Maybe he's inviting me to pray for that colleague in a freezer, which you did for me one day. This isn't an academic exercise. It's relational, okay? We show up to build a relationship of reliance instead of a bank of knowledge. We're not here to sit an exam at the end of time. He's not going to say, did you read your Bible and read Deuteronomy 24, 13, and have you memorized it? It's the people who know him. It's the people who know him who get in. Finally, we're told at the end of the parable that Jesus used this parable to show his disciples it's necessary not to be discouraged. As followers of Jesus, we have a great hope. A great hope. We know the God who came in a body and died for us because he loves us not because we're good enough. He didn't come because we were good. He came because we were messed up idiots. We're morons. We broke all of the laws. We can't even keep them if we wanted to. And he came because he loves us, because he delights in us, because he wants to rescue us. And he came and he suffered when we should have, and he's coming back, a God of love and hope. so we're saying, it's important that we, we don't be discouraged. This, We're in the middle of a world that's just so broken and messed up and dark. You read the news, I was looking at the news this morning, Somalia is about to be in a famine, right? We're in 2021 and there's a country in the world that's going to be in a famine. 2022, sorry. 2021 would equally be as bad, but that had COVID, so thank you, wife. Um, Glad you're always here. But the point is, still stands though. 2022 and there's a country in the world that is in the midst of famine. You know, that that shouldn't happen. Shouldn't happen. The world is broken and messed up. And yet we do have hope. We have great hope that he's returning soon. And the invitation is to don't lose sight of that. Don't be discouraged in the middle of the mess. Because the kingdom of God is already here. It's in our midst. Things are changing, no matter how dark it looks outside. And he is coming. So practically, how do we do this when the world around us seems to be falling apart? Oh, it's not good. <laughs> the book of Hebrews uh, says this, Hebrews 12, 1 to 3. We continue to fix our eyes on Jesus. It says this, Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses... Let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. Again, that's Jesus' point. Are you living for the kingdom of God or the kingdom of the world? It's the world. Just chuck it away. It's not worth it. You can't take it with you. Since we're surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, and it's not just talking about the believers, it's talking about the whole world. People are watching your life. Let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. And here's the practical thing. Fixing our eyes on Jesus, and I emphasize it's not about knowing anything, it's about fixing our eyes on him. The author, the one who created it, and the one who perfects our faith. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of God in heaven. Consider him who endured such opposition, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. We have a persevering saviour who will return. There's hope in that. There's joy in that. In the midst of what is a very difficult passage where he's talking about laying stuff down and there being really big issues like in Noah's time and in Lot's time and stuff's going to happen and it's going to be bad. There's hope for those who have faith. And there's an invitation for us not just enter a relationship with the saviour but to invite others to it as well. There's a God of hope. So the question Jesus leaves us with and the passage leaves us with is when the Son of Man comes will he find faith on earth? Will there still be people hanging around persevering taking the step each day trusting in Jesus praying, still hoping in the midst of the darkness? Will he find faith on earth? He will if those who claim to be his followers lay down their lives and persevere in their reliance on him for their present provision of future hope. He will There's people who still rely on him for their daily bread and who look for him for the future. So I'm going to pray and then we're just going to have a few moments just in in prayer as we think about how we might respond. Father, this passage is not easy to hear. We don't like thinking about your justice in in the way that it's described here, and yet in some ways it's helpful to see what is really positive, your invitation to us and the hope that we have, and that that's even more positive in light of what the alternative is. And Father, there's an invitation for someone in the room today to put their trust in you, For someone to say, there, there is a better way of living than what I'm living right now. And Father, there's an invitation for each one of us here today to evaluate our lives. None of us are perfect. None of us have it all together. There is things in every single one of our lives that is not honoring of you. And that takes your place so often in our lives and in our hearts. And your invitation is not to perfection, but it's to loose the shackles and, and just fix our eyes on you, that you would be our number one priority, that you would be the grid that we live our lives through. Help us to do that this week. Help us to evaluate where we're at with you, knowing that you're inviting us to something even better, Father, for those of us who don't have a consistent rhythm with you, help us to get our diaries or calendars or wherever else it is out and block out a time that makes sense, where we are at our freshest. Help us to pick a place. Help us to choose a plan. And Lord, I just pray that you'd meet us there. Help us persevere in that and help us change it up if it's not the right thing. By Lord, we're here for a relationship with you, not to just learn more about you as knowledge. Father, help us rely on you each day. Help us come to you for what we need and not try and manufacture it ourselves. Help us in the midst of the darkness. Always keep an eye on your light and your hope and the joy that we have in you. Help us remember this son of man that you, your son, called himself. No one else called him that eh, Lord. Help us remember the fact that he is God in a body who chose to suffer for me and for us and who will return to bring us home. Help us to fix our eyes on Jesus, the one who created faith and who will bring us to the fruition of that. And Father, just in the silence now, we just take a moment to reflect. What is it that we love more than you? Who is it that we love more than you? We bring it to you. We place it at your feet. Help us love you like you love us. Help us want a relationship with you more than anything else. Father, I pray that as we've thought about these things, that you would just take away the power of these things. Whether it's an addiction to sugar that we use to emotionally regulate ourselves, whether it's mindless TV that distracts us from the problems of the world, whether it's a relationship that we know we have no business being in, whatever it is, I just pray you take away the power of that and replace it with the peace and hope and love of walking in step with you. And we commit these things in Jesus' name. Amen. If today's message evoked anything in you and you'd like to talk or pray with one of our pastors, please get in touch by phone or email. All of our details can be found at albertpark.org.au. We worship together in person 10am every Sunday at 115 Kerford Road, Albert Park. All are welcome. We look forward to seeing you soon.